Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Kelly Romer, PhD candidate in Earth Sciences at Montana State University. Kelly has been working for years to understand the challenges facing rural resource-dependent communities, and in today's episode, we'll talk about one particularly interesting town, Colstrip, Montana. Colstrip, as its name implies, was founded to strip mine coal, and has continued to be highly dependent on coal mining and coal-fired power generation for decades. Today, as Colstrip faces an uncertain future, local stakeholders are trying to chart a path forward, but face numerous challenges. Kelly will help us understand those challenges, as well as the options that community members are considering to diversify the local economy and provide critical public services. Stay with us. Kelly Romer from Montana State University, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Kelly, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, We're going to talk today about your work um, on energy transition issues, focusing on a town in Montana called Colstrip. We're going to learn all about Colstrip today. Uh, But before we do that, uh, we always ask our guests about how they got interested in working on energy or environmental topics. So what drew you into this line of work? Well, thank you for the question. My interest in thinking about community and environmental transitions, specifically in rural and resource-dependent communities, really set in after undergrad when I was in AmeriCorps in a small town in southeastern Oregon. It is a small and remote town called Lakeview, and uh, for your listeners, this might not be the lush Oregon that initially comes to mind, but it's located on the east side of the state near the California and Nevada border, so you can picture a dry mixed conifer forest uh, that meets high desert sagebrush. And almost two decades before I got there, Lake County, Oregon, like many communities in the Pacific Northwest, had experienced economic and industrial decline associated with the collapse of the timber industry in the early 90s. So they had lost their economic base when three out of four of the sawmills had closed in the county. They were also confronting a new paradigm with respect to uh, forest management. In the wake of the economic shock, community members and state partners and land managers had come together to work towards a new community path forward, dedicating a lot of time and resources and creativity that focused on community development as well as forest management and renewable energy development. So by the time I got there, In 2014, working as a renewable energy coordinator, there are already many notable successes uh, that you could point to that are pretty inspiring. Um, They had won a lot of awards for their their stewardship and collaborative management approaches. They had implemented geothermal heating districts in a lot of public uh, buildings to reduce costs of running those. And they were actively recruiting a biofuel and biomass facility that align with their forest management goals. So really, you know, really incredibly creative and innovative, resourceful things just to to witness as, you know, a young, young person really interested in this. And however, there was this persistent sense of precarity that many rural communities face, which is, you know, the challenges to economic diversification in such a remote place. 
as well as the persistent challenge of providing and maintaining public services when you have such high cost per capita. So I left this experience as, you know, just an AmeriCorps member only there for 11 months and I had a new motivating question, which is, you know, how can rural resource communities transition into the future, especially with respect to the economic uncertainty and environmental change that we're experiencing? And that is what really brought me and motivated me to come work with Julia Haggerty in the Resources and Communities Research Group at Montana State, where I could study these questions in the context of the U.S. coal transition. That's super interesting, and it applies perfectly to the subject of our conversation today, which is coal strip. Um, coal strip, uh, for those of you who don't know, which I imagine is most of our listeners, uh, is a rural coal-dependent community in southern Montana. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of the town? Like, when was it founded? How has it changed over time? And also, why is it called coal strip? Yes, Daniel, this is the best question you could ask a PhD student. <laughs> about her case study. Um, coal Strip is, as you mentioned, it's a small remote town in southeastern Montana. It has a population of about 2,200 people, and it's located in the northern part of the Powder River Basin, which is the U.S.'s leading source of thermal coal. So what is really unique about Coal Strip is that it has a remarkable set of public services and community infrastructure for its size and location has an extensive parks and recreation system, a medical clinic, library, and this is all a direct result from its industrial history. And before we get into how that happened, as you might imagine, Coal Strip got its name from coal when it was first established in the mid-1920s by the Northern Pacific Railway to provide fuel to steam-powered locomotives and when diesel engines replaced their steam counterparts, coal mining and the equipment idled in coal strip for decades. It wasn't until the 1970s, as part of the national push for the development of the West Coal resources to supply electricity to growing West Coast cities, among other national goals, that Montana Power Company and its subsidiary Western Energy sought to build this, quote, model company town. This was um, a model company town aimed at overcoming Coal Strip's geographic isolation with an attractive and functional community and pleasant living conditions. This phrasing is from, you know, the, the plans that were, were advertised in the Billings Gazette <laughs> articles in, in the late 1960s. But the town operated this way, where the company built everything from water and sewer infrastructure to parks and the post office, and they maintained these services for nearly 20 years. That's really interesting. And and for those of you who um, are wondering about how Coal Strip is spelled, there's actually no A in Coal Strip. It's C-O-L-S-T-R-I-P. And I remember you and I talked about this a while back, and the suspicion was that it comes from like the old English spelling of coal. Is that right? Right. Right. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I just, I haven't heard anything specific about the A, but um, it makes sense that, you know, it's um, was established for coal and strip mining is the most common practice of coal mining in that region. Um, you know, th things change for coal strip 
in the 90s, in 1997, when Montana deregulated its electricity markets, when Montana Power Company sold its generating assets and effectively removed the company from the company town, and residents organized and they voted to incorporate and annexed in the coal plant property, as well as its taxable value into the city bounds. So this allowed a community of its size to take over those costs of preventing those services and the infrastructure that had been established by the power plant. Yeah, that's great. And, and that topic of tax revenue is so important, and we're going to come back to it. Um, but before we do, can you tell us, um, you know, now that we've gotten this great uh, thumbnail sketch of the history of the town, what is the current status of the plant and the coal mines that operate nearby? And what are its future prospects, especially in light of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the sort of long-term decline of coal in the U.S.? Well, the the coal strip station um, was it was built in two phases. Uh, units one and two were built in the 70s, and three and four were built in the 80s. And total at one point had a total nameplate capacity of 2,094 megawatts. So Coal Strip is a mine mouth power plant, so it's built right next to the Rosebud Mine, which supplies coal to the station via conveyor belt system. It also means that the power plant is that mine's only customer. So in 2020, the older two units closed two years earlier than their previously stated date. So that was a major shock to the community who had been anticipating a little bit more time. For three and four, there's a lot of uncertainty about the remaining operational lifespan of those units. So a full retirement of the coal strip station could mean closure for the Rosebud mine that could compound impacts of industrial closure to this small rural community. Yeah. And can you give us a sense of just how dependent the community is on the plant and the mine? You said earlier the, you know, it was literally a company town for quite some time. So, you know, what what are some of the implications and, and how, yeah, how dependent is the community on this mine and, and this coal plant? Yeah. Um, one way to get a sense of how dependent Coal Strip and other communities are uh, on power plants and mines is with a fiscal assessment, something that we had mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation. Coal extraction and electricity generation have generated taxes, royalties, and fees to states and communities where they're located, and have provided stable and substantial revenue for decades. And so a big concern in many of these places is that that loss of revenue could lead to a fiscal collapse of state budgets. And so when we we looked at fiscal dependence in Coal Strip and Rosebud County, we first looked at the property taxes in Coal Strip's taxing districts, because in Montana, property taxes are the primary source of funding for local governments. And after analyzing the share of the property taxes levied on the coal plant, we found that they provide nearly 50% of the city's total revenues. This was in 2020. That means one in every two dollars is used to fund local government or public services comes directly from that coal plant and coal-fired electricity. And for the county, we did the same thing, but also included coal extraction payments. And these payments include uh, federal mineral royalties, gross receipts, as well as property taxes, and found that those revenues contribute between 40 and 60 percent 
of the total revenue to the county in the last 10 years. So that means that at the same time, communities like Coal Strip experience and need to manage impacts of industrial closure, such as the loss of employment, environmental legacy issues, loss of an identity. They're also undergoing a fiscal transition that could undercut essential resources and capacities that they need to respond. Thanks for giving us that sense. Yeah, I mean, it's clear the community is just extremely dependent, right, on on these facilities. Um, one of the things that I've learned by reading your work, and I should say that a lot of what we're talking about is coming from a paper that you co-authored with Julia Haggerty, uh, published recently in Energy Research and Social Science. Uh, the name of the paper is The Energy Transition as Fiscal Rupture, Public Services and Resilience Pathways in a Coal Company Town. Uh, of course, we'll have the link to that in the show notes so people can check it out. Um, but one of the things I've, I've learned from reading your work is that decision-making about the future of this plant and the associated mine is really, really complex. Can you help us understand the mix and the, and the complexity of the stakeholders who all have a say in the plant's future and how that mix and complexity creates planning challenges for the community? Yes. Uh, I, I think one of the major factors that adds a sense of complexity and uncertainty about the future of the plant has to do with the complex ownership structure of the power plant. So with just the remaining two units, there are six different owners that live in different states that have different regulations and economic incentives to adhere to. And so some of those owners are in states like Oregon and Washington that have passed legislation that require them to get out of coal and exit ownership by either 2025 or 2035. And so um, while others are are pushing to to keep the the plant open for the remaining operational lifespan. And so that adds a sense of complexity, those negotiations between those different owners that, you know, we don't know if or when units three and four may close. And one other factor about this is that those decisions are being made out of state in rate case settlements. Um, that's where, you know, closure dates as well as potential resources to support transition are being negotiated. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about those resources that can help support a transition? Like how, what types of uh, options are kind of under consideration? Right. I, I think when I spend a lot of time thinking about transition assistance and transition support, it can be organized into a few different categories. You have support for employment and dislocated workers. You have economic development support. Um, and then there's a, an important piece that is really missing, and that is revenue replacement. There's still not very many options within either policy or assistance that can directly support communities in uh, either replacing the revenue or addressing the specific impact of um, fiscal decline. Yeah. And, and just so people know, when you say revenue, you're referring to revenue that supports schools and local governments and recreation facilities and stuff like that. Yeah. So let's dig into that, um, you know, a, a little bit more, this, this issue of fiscal impacts and, and options. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how 
this reliance on the plant and the mine for public revenues affects the decision making that uh, that's happening right now uh, about the plant's continued operation both today and into the future. Mm-hmm. I'd love to. So, um, you, as you mentioned, this the paper that we we're talking about is really focused on that relationship between that the revenue and public services and. What I mean by public services when I'm talking um, about them are our formal services. They're our schools, our libraries, our um, our local law enforcement, public safety, and and volunteer fire departments. These are these uh, community organizations and public services that um, support both emergency and day-to-day functions. They're critical for relationship building and the ability to organize, come together, and be resilient to to change your shocks that maybe it might be the, um, you know, the, the shock of an industrial closure, but it also could be an environmental shock. And so these are really important components to communities, and especially in rural places that have such a hard time with low population and low population densities that um, high cost per capita of providing the services and infrastructure um, presents a, a challenge of, of meeting those needs. And so when you have a, a community like Colstrip, whose uh, revenue is is really dependent on the coal plant itself, but also the, the people that work there and um, are connected to it, the loss of that revenue will mean substantial declines in funding for services. And this means that you're losing key resources and capacities necessary to respond. So you could imagine that there is a lot of resistance to a transition when you could really lose the components that make your community a community. And that makes me wonder about some of the kind of internal dynamics and for lack of a better word, the politics of, of the closure. Are the elected officials in Colstrip, um, you know, making efforts to try to keep the plant running as long as possible? Are they sort of planning for a future decline? Like how are the local officials um, kind of thinking about their options for the future? Like what are they and, and what are they doing about it? Right. It's great to put this in conversation with your question earlier about that complex ownership structure, because a lot of the decisions about what will happen to the plant when it will close are happening in those spaces that are outside of Colstrip and those elected officials' control. So you can imagine the local officials being in a fairly reactive position, sort of um, responding and grappling with the fiscal dependence as they face it. So they're confronting um, raising taxes and cutting services, as well as uh, layoffs for uh, public employees. And so, you know, they're, they're confronting a lot of serious community development decisions. At the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty about how long they have to plan, about, you know, what types and levels of services will be needed in the future. So they're making a lot of decisions just in the midst of a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, it sounds really hard. When community leaders are 
you know, thinking about the future and they're thinking about economic development and diversifying the local tax base, what are some of the options that are on the table? Like, what are people talking about? Is it, you know, mainly focused on keeping the plant open or are there other economic sectors that, you know, local folks think are viable? Right. Well, first, you have to say that, you know, there are uh, a lot of dedicated community members and stakeholders who are actively working to implement an economic diversification plan. And that does include feasibility studies that could include other uses for coal or adding carbon capture and storage. But I think the key thing that's still unaddressed is that revenue replacement piece. And I have this uh, friend and mentor from the University of Wyoming, Roger Kupal, and he's worked with resource communities for a really long time. And he he likes to say that before you can get to where you want to go, you first have to reckon with how you got here. And so what I take that to mean in this context is, you know, there's a need to situate fiscal dependence as well as the public service risk within the historic, um, you know, historic development context as well as the policy landscape in which it was made because that really, um, can constrain the set of choices available to local officials. I think a key thing to support that transition could include a transition impact assessment that could help communities identify these risks, as well as opportunities for, you know, where different stakeholders need to be included um, to, to move forward and make decisions specifically um, something we've talked about, Daniel, before is um, coal strips, interesting water infrastructure <laughs> there. So um, briefly, when they built the power plant in the 1970s, they needed to, to pipe a lot of water from the Yellowstone River 30 miles to coal strip. And so this water conveyance and supply system um, brings fresh water for the coal plant, but it also is the source of water for the city of Coal Strip. And the plant owners currently, all six of them, are the owners and operators and funders of that water infrastructure. So if it closes, what happens to that? Can the community take on those costs? And um, yeah, those are important aspects that might need other stakeholders from the state and and partners to really work those types of transition pieces out. Mm-hmm. Okay, Kelly, so I'd love to ask you one more question about Coal Strip, and then I'm going to ask you about something else uh, before we go to our top of the stack segment. Um, and this is a question that's, uh, I think, a really hard one. Uh, I imagine some of our listeners are listening to this conversation and thinking to themselves, you know, we're talking about a small town in an out-of-the-way part of Montana. Uh, the town only exists because of coal. And as we move away from coal, maybe it makes sense for that town to essentially you know, fold up shop uh, and for the people who live there to move somewhere else and, and find something else to do. Um, what do you think about when you hear views like that, which I know you have in the past? Right. No, that is a, a really important question. And I think a lot of times we hear debates when we think about managing transition impacts about people strategies or place-based strategies. And I think people-based strategies might 
promote, you know, helping people buy out their mortgages and um, supporting their ability to move to where their jobs are. However, you know, folks may take those options, but place is really important to to people, as many of us who who might be working remote jobs really can appreciate, and that there'll be people who will stay in Colstrip because they love it and it's home, and they will need to be ensured that there are a reasonable services available to them, as well as um, the environmental legacies are cleaned up. And I think the core the core concern that I have, and when I think about the concept of community resilience, is the ability of agency in the sense of the direction of your your community's future. I think what fiscal dependence and resource dependence does is it undermines community's ability to have agency over, you know, where they're going to go and limits the ability to transition. The second thing I think is important to think about what we can learn about energy transitions from a community like Colstrip is that we're about to embark on a major national push to build infrastructure and mine critical minerals and renewable energy development and we just need to consider the entire industrial life cycle of what that might entail. We see in Coal Strip and many of these coal communities that end of the industrial life cycle from a national regional push to develop the West energy resources. And so ensuring that communities and, um, and regions have some agency after that resource is developed is something that I'm interested in, in continuing to look for solutions for. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, these resource dependency issues—they're—they're they're not going to go away just uh, just because we, you know, uh, develop a cleaner energy system. They're certainly going to change. Um, so, one more question, Kelly, before we go to our top of the stack, which uh, I'm very interested in, because when you're not out there researching energy communities like Coal Strip, I know that you also do work on communicating wildland fire incident information in Montana. Um, so that just sounds fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do in that role and what has fire season been like this year? Yes. Uh, thank you. I, I mean, as you might be able to appreciate, every graduate student needs a second job at some point. <laughs> um, and I, for the last few summers, have worked as a public information officer on a wildland fire incident management team. So there's a lot of acronyms, P-I-O-I-M-T, that come with that. Um, and what happens is when a wildfire starts, an incident management team comes in, which is an organization of people and resources that can support local agencies and in, in managing that fire and sort of take that load off. And I'm responsible for communicating fire information, facilitating public meetings, and um, answering those fire info lines um, while that incident is going on. And I'll say that we've been fairly fortunate, relatively speaking, this summer in Montana, we've had a much quieter fire season than, than we had last year. So I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's true across much of the West. It seems like this year, just for whatever reason, hasn't been quite as bad as the last couple of years have. 
And so on like day to day, are you answering, you're answering phones, you're planning meetings, you're like preparing communications uh, outputs. Is that the kind of thing you do? So what happens is I get a phone call and I uh, disappear. So I drop everything. I stop working on my dissertation and I go to where the fire is and we set up a little incident command post and work in yurts or trailers with internet. And that's really when the work starts. So you disengage from your real life and you are there for 15 hours a day for two weeks straight and developing those daily press releases and organizing those public meetings as they're needed. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Well, definitely a podcast for another day. Um, so now, Kelly, uh, before we close out, uh, I'd love to ask you the question we ask all our guests who come on the show, which is to recommend something that they've read or watched or heard that they think is great and they'd recommend to our listeners. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yes. Well, I have two podcast recommendations because I have to wrap Montana Public Radio I would love to recommend, I wonder if it's been recommended on this podcast before, but it's called The Richest Hill, which is a podcast that really dives into the story of Butte, Montana, which has a rich labor history um, and rich culture that, you know, is organized around its mining history. And it really walks through the transition of of mining and then the resulting legacy of the one of the nation's largest Superfund sites in the Berkeley pit and how the EPA is coming in and, and handling that. I think that's a really, um, a really good insight into, you know, resource communities in transition. The second one is called Fireline, which is a six part, series that focuses on all sorts of wildland fire issues facing the West from, you know, history of suppression and wildland urban interface and wildland firefighter mental health. So both those podcasts could make some good commute listens as um, for folks interested in learning more about issues facing Western communities. Yeah, those both sound great. I, um, I've subscribed to both now that you've recommended them. Sounds fantastic. Well, one more time, Kelly Romer, uh, PhD candidate from Montana State University. Thank you so much for coming onto the show and helping us learn about your work on coal strip and resource dependent communities. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week 
for another episode.